0: In today's episode, Dr. Kashi explores more intricacies of stress, and its potential to compound into what feels like a never-ending doom spiral. Listen in as he provides insights into what makes you more resilient, guiding you toward more constructive outcomes. Roll the intro! Hello! 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 And welcome to Ah, Coffee with Cashy. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Cashy. Today's lesson continues on what appears to be an accidental series on the psychobiology of stress. Emphasis on psycho, right? Cool. Cool. This lesson is a two-parter okay, and discusses the concept of resilience a little bit. Or how likely you are to get stressed out, and then when you do get stressed out, how fast fast you recover from it. But what happens if you get stressed out, and you get stressed out from that stress, and it compounds into what feels like a death spiral? Well, you get stuck. You get stuck. You ever felt stuck? Well, you're in luck. That sounds interesting. That's the way she goes, though. Now, there are seven big things to consider here, obviously, and this lesson, time permitting, you'll learn about the first three or four of them, alright? Now, let's start with resilience. You can think of human resilience in a few different ways. The general consensus within the academic community is that resilience is essentially the ability to recover from and adapt to distress, which now you all have the, have the concept. You have a concept of the Cellian, really definitions of of stress physiology a little bit here. And so it's the ability to adapt and recover from distress, the bad pathological sort of stress, the type of stress that leads to people becoming miserable and sick and if excess food is available, fat, essentially. (laughs) Now, scientists have studied resilience for years and it's mostly been on children and, and in families that endure disasters. However, there's lots to glean from it. Now, in the context of disasters, that's different than like, oh, this is a disaster, where people are just disaster-fying one of life's just normal hassles. Uh, these, we're talking about like human-made disasters like war and terrorism or, or natural disasters like earthquakes, floods, fires, etc. And I'll be darned, guess what the major protective factors were? These indicators of resilience. Who exhibited the most resilience? Okay. here are the seven things people with flexible belief systems, people that were decisive in their judgment, that they acted in a timely manner, that they were confident in their actions, that they were persistent in their execution, persistent in the execution of putting the microphone in front of your face. Okay. they had a sense of community to support Sharon Bear. They were respectful of themselves and others. They were tolerant of frustrations. And last, possibly one of the most important, was that they were purpose filled. Okay, a perspective that led them to constructive outcomes. Okay, in other words, they were rational and constructive. They were rational and constructive. That's how you can simplify this down how to unstuck yourself. Being rational and constructive. Hot diggity. All right. So let's start with number one. Flexible beliefs and belief systems. Uh, Being flexible in the cognitive sense, mind you, with the way a person thinks rather than, you know, touching your toes, at least in the context of facing new challenges. That is a critical component of constructive outcomes. Okay. Flexible, flexible belief systems, flexible thinking. All right. This is essentially being able to see the same problem from different perspectives which can also be considered creativity and readily changing their approach when presented with new information, also known as being reasonable. So being creative and being reasonable are definite like, and that is essentially what makes a person cognitively flexible. Okay. Being reasonable and creative. (laughs) That is a key component in resilience, which again is what are the chances you're going to get stressed out? And when you do get stressed out, how quickly you recover from it. Next is being decisive. Number two, being decisive, essentially acting on purpose. We're acting with purpose is number seven, but being decisive, acting on purpose. One person, Once a person forms their beliefs around the frustrating stimulus, okay, it's time for them to respond in accordance with that belief system. After all, thinking rationally, although of critical importance, is all but wasted unless a person does something about it. And this is where you can learn how sensitive this person is to frustration. Often, it comes out as hesitation. Hmm? Chronic hesitation, however, is practically speaking, procrastination. Ah. Indeed, a big negative of responding, a big negative of responding to a frustrating stimulus is that you end up taking responsibility for the outcome. Hmm. So what's the alternative, okay? Well, doing nothing is an alternative. Nothing is indeed a response. One, however, that practically always leads to destructive outcomes anyway, making problems worse, creating even more frustrating stimuli, okay? That's essentially procrastination, right? That sort of indecisiveness, as it were, the delaying, waiting for the perfect moment, impossible needing all the perfect information impossible when they must do it perfectly impossible okay in other words this person demands a guarantee demands a guarantee good luck the only guarantee this person gets is the frustration of failing and anything worth doing is worth doing poorly (laughs) right so number one was flexible beliefs number two is being decisive number three is persistence Sometimes, really adapting to and overcoming frustrations at S requires a bit more than rational thinking and decisive responding are, in a timely manner. This is where persistence comes in, to essentially respond rationally and decisively to the same stimulus over and over. Hmm. Examples abound in scientific discovery, a personal bias, obviously, but informative all the same. Sorry but informative all the same take the invention of the light bulb the light bulb was actually invented by sir humphrey davy in the year i think 1800 or something like that but there was one problem with it it sucked it was more like an extremely expensive match you'd turn it on it would burn itself out in a few seconds lighting everything else on fire in the process nearly 80 years later Edison modified the design to be cheaper, more energy efficient, and last like forty hours. Soon after that, he modified the design so that the light bulb would glow for well over a thousand hours. This cost Edison more than six thousand attempts, supposedly, reportedly. Okay. However, this is the major differentiator between rational persistence and impulsive stubbornness. A person acts stubbornly or obstinately when they do the same dumb crap over and over, knowing full well it's dumb and still hope for a change, even if it's hurting them. That's different from just plain old giving up. Which, if if I have to explain that, well, then I will direct you towards other resources. Okay. So there's a compute, a compute, a cute axiom that the that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. At the very least, it's the inevitably destructive outcome of a distorted belief system, <laughs> okay so wasn't edison was Edison insane uh, on account of his six thousand failed experiments? Hmm? Well, think of it this way. Edison was thinking rationally and acting constructively, in other words, using the scientific method. a person is persistent when they learn from each experiment and use their data to inform the next experiment. So, with that in mind, did Edison really try 6,000 times to make his best light bulb? No, it was closer to doing 6,000 different things one time. That's the difference, that's the difference, okay? Number four, okay, community. Community, or, or as academics call it, interpersonal connectedness, or relatedness, or something of that nature, might be one of the strongest predictors of resilience. That's different than one of the best characteristics to have to be resilient. However, it is a strong predictor of resilience ahead of time. Uh, well, and, and at least connectedness within a community, anyway. Uh, people in communities and involved in those communities are more resistant to stress and recover faster from being stressed, okay, in terms of predictive outcomes. There are other people to support, share, and bear what is happening, which also helps on account of being in contact with others, the, the other the other three characteristics you've learned about. So think about it. Around more people, you can gather more perspectives, you can get more data, and thus modify, update, and revise a flexible belief system. You can be more confident and decisive in the decisions that you make. Okay, Crafting safety nets to understand, better understand risk. And the distribution of some of that responsibility, okay? And then last, borrowing the energy from other people to be persistent, okay? The people who feel loved, okay, which is a big difference in actually being loved, people who feel loved, they live longer and they're more resilient. That's why I differentiate uh, this community thing because a lot of people are in communities and they're miserable, okay? So this is a person who is in a community or even outside of a community, but they still feel loved. This is the difference. They live longer, they're more resilient because the biochemistry of love, the biochemistry of love transitions, their stress physiology to the left, just like Beyonce says, everything to the left in a box. Okay? So they transition from distress over to e-stress. okay? people who are alone or convince themselves they are alone, super common. Okay. Even when they're objectively cared for by people that do care. Okay. Very common in adolescence. They feel very alone despite being cared for by a caring family, et cetera, et cetera. They will assume the stress physiology of a person that's actually alone and bitter and angry. How about that? Leading to all of the nasty stuff that pathological distress causes. Okay, again, back to cognitive appraisal, back to the perspective you take, back to self-induced misery and disturbance, okay? That leads to all the other nasty stuff like obesity and cardiovascular disease. In other words, they quite literally die of heartache. Hmm. How interesting is that? Quite an interesting consequence of feeling stuck, right? (laughs) So many people get sucked into their stuckness, but now you're more than halfway out of it. Pretty cool, right? Thank you for learning. Stay rational. Until next time. Want to continue having coffee with Dr. Kashi? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is very much appreciated. Thank you, and see you next week. Dr. Kashi is out!